Welcome to A Handful of Hope, where we bring you heart-to-heart conversations with heart-centered people. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of A Handful of Hope. I am so happy and grateful to have Kelly Fitzsimmons with us here today, who is a serial tech entrepreneur, artist, author, and mother of two. She's a co-founder of Custom Reality Service, a virtual reality production company whose first two projects, Across the Line and Ash 68, premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. In her book, Lost in Startup Landia, Wayfinding for the Weary Entrepreneur, she chronicles her journey having started six businesses in three different industries over 20 years. In this honest personal guide, she draws on her trials and triumphs, as well as those of fellow entrepreneurs to share their most valuable lessons of surviving startup failure. Kelly is the recipient of the Silver Tip PWC Entrepreneurship Award and Speech Technologies Luminary Award. Her work has been published by Network Computing, Information Week, and Inc. Currently, she's composing music and writing a narrative fiction as part of the art collective VUCA. Originally trained as a classical archaeologist, Kelly holds a master's degree from Harvard University. Kelly, welcome and thank you so very much for being here. Yay, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And I, I, I wanted to say too, I read your book. Yeah. And I think that it's it's such a, and I wanted to start with something I read in there, and I think it's such a great story, not just for, not, not a book, not just for entrepreneurs, people in startup, but I think there's some really beautiful life lessons that people can glean from that. And I say that because I think that it's rare when you read a, a you know, quote unquote business book that you have such transparency. I think oftentimes we will gloss over the, we'll gloss over the muck and the yuck of and the challenges and tribulations and the real impact of it to go right to the actionables. Here's how you get out there and crush your goals. Here's how you get out there and, you know, do those kinds of things that we hear. And so I think that it's, it, there's so much great stuff in there that I find that I think people could benefit from it. And you shared something in there that we have a, a we're kindred spirits in and that you went to Haiti and it was a place where you really discovered joy Right. And I was hoping maybe we could start there and you could share a little bit about that because I had a similar experience in Haiti. Oh, gosh, it was such an amazing experience. Um, yeah, I mean, people have always said that I'm very positive and enthusiastic. And I think for people who've known me, you know, at least superficially, it would probably come as a shock to hear that joy is a new emotion for me. Very new. Really, in the last five years, have I started to experience it. And and I should probably define what I mean by joy, which is the absence of fear. Um, you know, just the complete and utter ability to be present and fully in the moment without any anxiety or concern for the future or past. And, um, you know, my whole life, anxiety has been, you know, sort of riding in the car right next to me, you know, mm. shotgun. And, um, and so I could feel happy. I could even have moments of contentment, but joy, as I define it, I couldn't access because there was always something lurking in the shadows that was going to snatch it away from me. And I think there was a part of me that's genuinely feared that if I let myself go into joy, I would somehow be unsafe. There was like reckless. I think I had some sort of story like that. And so what happened was I went to Haiti and it wasn't a long trip, but it was a service trip in which I was going with a friend um, who was being honored. He'd helped to build um, housing for over 10,000 people in Haiti. Mm. And um, they were naming a housing complex um, after him. This is Yannick Silver. And I got to know Yannick through his organization, Mavericks, and absolutely just adore Yannick. And so I wanted to go to, to celebrate um, this beautiful achievement. And so we got down there and we started meeting with some of the families and the children and it's pretty stark pretty quickly. And people can tell you and try to mentally prepare you for it, but until you, um, the shock of poverty that we were seeing, you really can't, there's just, you, you don't necessarily have the imagination for it. Um, and so there we were. And what we ended up doing was we, 
were meeting with this group of 15 children, all of whom had become orphaned with the great earthquake, which you were involved in, as I know, the relief efforts up. And they had survived for two years on their own, with the oldest being about 12 and the youngest mm -hmm. in diapers, um, without any parental supervision, and really had become their own family. And one of the children, Benjamin, um, had never smiled. And there was something about meeting this group of kids and watching how they held each other. And us in the West, we have such space, right? Like, I don't want to get into your space. I don't want to be thought of as a close talker. I don't want to invade your personal, you know, space. We say things like that. And, and yet, it's really impoverished living the way we live in America and with these social norms. Like we don't have that kind of rootedness and deep connection. And I kept thinking while I was around them, I'm the poor one. Hey. I'm the poor one. I don't have anybody. I feel like I could just wrap myself around. And here was 15 kids all just holding each other and touching each other. And one of the children, we were giving clothes. Um, a bunch of nuns had made these beautiful pants. And um, we were, I was trying to give it to a four-year-old. And my daughter at the time was four. And she was saying in French, no, 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 I, I can't have it. And I, and I, was, I couldn't figure out why. And I'm like, no, 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 this is for you. This is for you. And so finally, she took me by the hand and walked me over to another child that child didn't have a pair of pants yet. She had a pair of pants. And that choice making at four, like I have two girls, you know, 18 months apart, and they will fight to the death over a pair of pants. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, I'm raising my children terribly, you know, wow. like, look at this and look at mine. And I'm, I'm creating entitlement and this is mine versus this beautifulness of sharing. And once again, I was like, I'm the poor one, you know, I'm the one who needs to be taught. I'm not showing up here with anything really to offer other than, you know, money and resources. And something about that experience just clicked. And all of a sudden I started to feel just joy like unmitigated joy because all of my concerns and it all seemed so small and insignificant. There wasn't anything I was dealing with that was life or death. Um, and I couldn't feel sorry for myself on any level. And I think that there is this part of anxiety, which is basically telling us we're not capable of handling the future. And it's a lie, you know, we are all capable of handling the future. I mean, there are futures out there that can break us, but the vast majority of times we will rise to the occasion. People are incredibly resilient. And as Haiti proved, right? Um, so it was an incredibly humbling experience, but more importantly, it was, um, a life transformative experience because now I had a roadmap for what joy felt like. And I realized I wanted to set it as my GPS heading that true North was joy. Hmm. And to get there, I had to handle and, and hold myself very differently with the anxiety and depression that when I put it under that particular spotlight, it just all fell away. It was all so meaningless. It was just, it was just me torturing myself essentially needlessly, if that makes any sense. You have no idea how much it does <laughs> and how unbelievably similar your experience was to mine in Haiti in terms of our aha moments for joy. I, I remember this moment so vividly and I, it's hard to believe it was over 10 years ago, but it was, it was at night and where we were, we were we were camped out in this field, and they were bussing out a lot of the people who had survived poor prints. And earlier that day, there had been a bus that had it had taken something like 12 hours. So it should take only about this the the journey from where we were into Port-au-Prince should only take about an hour and a half. It was taking about 12 hours by bus when they were bussing people out because of the sheer devastation in the city. And they had just piled on basically anybody who wasn't critical 
had thrown into this bus and were busing them out. And when the bus got there, there, there was, I mean, people that were so bandaged and bruised up and bloodied and had had amputations or were going to need amputations and were already missing limbs and who had, had loved ones died. And they were sitting two in a seat, sometimes three, because it was so overcrowded because of the sheer devastation and the lack of infrastructure. And like you were saying, you, you can't, all the prep for the level of poverty there can't even begin to describe how impoverished it is. And I remember just helping people get off this bus and just seeing the amount of blood and, and everything. And, and so you fast forward after going through this whole thing, everybody gets settled in. And later that night, probably about 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, there's a campfire that some of the Haitians have set up in the middle of the, in the, middle of the area. And there was a little bit of a physical shelter there, kind of this almost like a, a barn type building, but none of them wanted to go sleep under, inside because they were terrified of after what just happened. So they all went to sleep outside and there wasn't tents or anything. So they were just taking tarps and sheets and if they had to make any sort of makeshift shelter. But I'll never forget these people, they're standing around, they, they all gathered around the fire and they started singing. And I just happened to be walking by and I caught it and I saw them singing and dancing and the ones who were amb ambulatory and they were celebrating. And it was just like they were, and they were celebrating. What they were celebrating is they're celebrating life. And these, these people, like as bandaged and bloodied and bruised as they were, now, and the other part of that is too, is if they were able to salvage anything, they were carrying their possessions in maybe, maybe a half full hefty bag, all their possessions they had. And they were laughing and smiling and celebrating life. And I, I was, when I had arrived in Haiti, I was in such a dark place because I had just gone through losing my friend to suicide. And then my, um, my relationship I was in at the time dissolved because of that. And, you know, me, 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 me. And then getting there, and I had that same kind of epiphany as you. I was like, whoa, wait a minute. They can, they, if they can have this emotion right now, if they can be happy, if they can be joyous, if they can be, if they can have gratitude for life in this moment, why, why can't I? Right. Right. I'm not the one coming from this place of like, yeah, I was the one who's really poor. Like I was emotionally just so poor. And it was such a, yeah, it was probably one of the most important moments of my life. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to wake up and realize the things that we value aren't necessarily the ones that are the things that are important. Right. Mm -hmm. Like uh, we live in a, achiever society. Um, we call it a meritocracy. It's not, but we pretend like it is. And for me, I threw myself full scale into proving that I was somebody. And my whole career, my bio, everything that's in there feels like such a lie because it, it's all about proving that I'm a worthwhile human being, that I deserve what I have. And and actually, it's total BS. Like, it's just, you know, I deserve to have food and air and unpolluted water because I'm human, you know, because I breathe. Um, these, you know, and the idea that wealth brings happiness or that the social structures we put in place in the U.S. and in the West are really for the best for our children and all of these things, right? It caused me to question all of it. Mm. Because I saw in so many of my friends and myself chasing the dream, chasing the money, chasing the status, and then, you know, losing your health, losing your family, losing your relationships in the process because it's a trade. And nobody ever tells you it's a trade. Um, but if you're going to focus you know, and spend 100-hour weeks creating a startup, you are trading your life away for that. And is it worth it? So that was really the, the, the spirit out of which I wrote the book was I was so sick. I had gotten so sick and I couldn't work. And so now I had to sense make and figure out, well, why was I doing this to myself in the first place? And that was, and that really, a big part of that was sparked by Haiti. Um, I mean, it took some thoughts that I was already having and really reoriented me fast on 
the only thing that matters is joy. Because if I can hold joy, it's a radical space to hold. And people mm. vibrate. It's like a contagion, right? And it does make a difference in the world. It does reduce suffering. And I think if there is any good and noble work in this world, it is to reduce the suffering of ourselves and others. And so for me, joy is this beautiful wayfinding tool. And I know I'm off course when I'm feeling really unhappy because I'm not pointing and directing myself towards joy, which requires work. Like it's not just abandonment of my daily responsibilities. Um, joy, joy requires that I invest in certain behaviors continuously, like self-care, like exercising, eating well, having celiac makes that pretty, pretty straightforward to me. I just can't indulge in a lot of crap. Um, and as weird as it sounds, I wouldn't trade having celiacs um, mm. for anything at this point because I don't think I would eat well if there wasn't immediate consequences. Um, I mean, who wants to eat their veggies all the time? I mean, it's, it's hard. But it, my body is more joyful when I do. It creates the conditions for joy when I am well-nourished, right? But, you know, our prefrontal cortex is all about storing fat and sugar. <laughs> it's in the way. It's like, I don't want broccoli. But broccoli does is the foundation of joy. Said <laughs> <laughs> through, said through <laughs> bit lips and gritted teeth. <laughs> right. Like it's, it's hilarious. And I always feel so much better after I do it. I'm like, that was a really great meal. I'm really proud of myself. Let me go find the ice cream. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. Reward myself. We, we're, I mean, it's tricky, right? Like this human body thing, it just so gets in the way. It, it has its own needs and desires so often, which is a, a, a direct conflict with the long-term goals we have. I'm laughing with you because I barbecued on Sunday night and I made a bunch of roasted veggies with it. And when I took them out, I'm looking, I'm going, God, these look so great. And then I ate them and I'm all, and this is after I ate an entire bag of Trader Joe's peanut butter pretzels earlier in the day. Right. And I was feeling blah. And then after I ate that, I was like, God, why don't I do this more? This is so, and I, I eat right. most of the time, but I right. love the freaking peanut butter pretzels every now and then too. And even though I know that the consequences of it far outweigh the benefit of it, that little hit of pleasure, it just feels really good sometimes to <sighs> sit there and bite the salt off and crunch on it and everything else. And, it does. And it's like, and it's important. I think the thing is making it a ritual, like you're describing it is very different than mindless eating. Yeah. Right. Like I, and I like one of my favorite things to do and the sound, this is probably TMI, but I love getting really good chocolate and then taking a bath and like having like little tiny pieces of chocolate. It just feels so luxurious and decadent, but it's very mindful. Like I just sit there and I just, have the chocolate and I have the hot bath and, and, you know, it's, it's just this, you know, it's a sensory overload and, but it's not like I eat an entire bar of chocolate, you know, I eat a quarter bar of chocolate very slowly in this context. Mm. And that's, I think those are really beautiful examples of rewards that we can give ourselves on the joy scale. Versus I ate a whole bag. <laughs> and like, you know, and so it's like, how do you, how do you do it? And so I think ritual is, is something we don't use enough of in the West, you know, of like making it this whole thing. Like I cut the chocolate into very small pieces. I lay it out in a beautiful way. I, you know, it's just, trying to instill joy without judgment, right? Like you still yeah. should be able to indulge but indulge in a way that feeds your soul and your sense of aesthetics and beauty while at the same time giving that, giving a little relief to the, you know, to the body that just really wants the fat and sugar and salt, like just wants it. We're, yeah. that we're fighting millions of years of evolution. Like why? Learning joy without punishment. Woo. 
And for you, what is what do you mean by punishment? I'm really curious because I've got my version of punishment. Yeah. I'm curious, how do you punish yourself out of joy? The image that comes to mind as uh, that just kind of ran out of my mouth before I got a chance to think it through all the way was it's the it's the verbal whip that comes out. It's the verbal whip of you shouldn't have done that. You know better. Now you're going to have to work out more. Now you're going to feel like shit for however many days. Yep. You know, you just, you just, you, you took five days of really good eating and destroyed it at one, you know, now you're going to have to go without for three weeks so that you can get back to baseline, those kinds of things. And and it's so ridiculous because I know it too. Like I know how ridiculous it is, but then in those moments where I've taken it to just the extreme of, I should have stopped at three quarters of the bag, but I had to have that last quarter of it. Yeah. And I get to that, I get to that blah feeling where I, I've gone past the decadent enjoyment, enjoyment mm-hmm. into the, well, I might as well, we'll mm-hmm. call it. And then in, in that, well, I might as well, where the body starts to really feel bad, where the blah feeling really starts to come out, where the joy has left because now I'm just eating to eat purely for fat, sugar, because I love the, the hypnotic crunching sound. Yeah. And it, right. And it's just, it's comforting in that moment. And mm-hmm. then now all of a sudden I'm left with that blah feeling. And because I know I don't want to have that blah feeling. And because I know I violated that initial agreement I made with myself. Now I have a penance that I must pay. Right. But it's why? So interesting. Totally on, totally on that penance. Like, you know, now is the time for self-flagellation. Now is the time for penitence. You know, you yeah. go very, we go medieval on ourselves. We just get <laughs> crap out of our of ourselves, and it's like, you know, I'm I'm not that Catholic. That's one only one half. You know, yeah. <laughs> like how did this happen? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm a flagellant. Yeah. I just knew. I mean, it's what what came to mind. Um, I said this to Jeff, my husband, the other day, and I said the ice cream broke. He's like, "What do you mean?" I'm like, "It's not working anymore. The ice cream it broke because I'd oh, I was like I was up to like two bowls a day, like because it's like my little happy thing, and I put it in a tiny little cup and I eat it with a tiny little spoon, and usually it makes me feel really really good and. I was like, the cups were getting bigger and bigger, and there was one, and there was two, and like, if well, if it's a different flavor, does it really count as a, you know? So it's like a different food group, right? So the ice cream broke about two weeks ago. How does and the how, only, yeah, go ahead. Oh no, I'm, I'm really curious. So when that happens, when you have ice cream breaking, how does Jeff respond to that? Does he does he support you in that? Does he give you the well, you know, did you know it was about to break talk? How does he, how does he? Never. No, he's amazing. I mean, we've got a really, really amazing relationship that took a lot of work. Like we took our time to get here. So I don't want anybody saying, oh, my relationship's not like that. It sucked for about 13 years. Um, But now we're in a really good place where there is no shaming around it. Um, There is no questioning of my judgment. Um, you know, he will say things like you do not get to use incredulous. That's one of like, cause I, I, I can't use incredulous cause I, I really am that outrageous. Um, but that's like, that's like the most like, kind of like, like nudgy thing he'll do is you can't, you can't use incredulous and he's right. I can't, I, it's one of <laughs> like, I forsake that in my, my total ridiculousness of behavior. Um, so yeah, no, he, you know, he just laughs or, you know, nods and I suppose it is broken, you know, and he kind of leans in. He's very funny, Mm. which helps. Um, I think having humor at these times, either somebody can start it for us on the outside or we can find it for ourselves creates just a little bit of space between that self-loathing of, I can't believe I just did X behavior and, and, you know, just being able to laugh at ourselves about, oh, that was pretty human. Of course, with COVID and a pandemic and racial unrest and civic unrest, I'm going to start eating a lot of ice cream, you know? Mm. And yes, because I feel helpless and my little poor brain just can't handle it and I don't drink. So 
I don't have all of the buffers, you know, and I guess liquor sales are up like 75%. <laughs> I mean, people, we want to numb out. And yeah. this is my particular version of numbing out. There's many other ways to do this. And, you know, the, the, the question is always like, am I creating more suffering or less suffering by this? Mm. And the ice cream, luckily I have a pretty high metabolism. I can go for a pretty long time without seeing physical ramifications, but I was feeling it cognitively. I was just feeling heavy and like you were talking about that. Yeah. Why did I do this? So my friend Dave and I, we send each other emojis, like when we're feeling shame and guilt and we'll send each other just these, just random emojis, like whatever we can grab that does not make any sense just to make awareness of it. Um, and he has a theory, which I think is kind of genius. It's like shame and guilt almost always is a form of absurdity. There's an absurdity to it. And so our job is to find the absurdity in whatever it is, right? And if you can find the absurdity, you can laugh at it. And so that was the thing with the random emojis. Mm. Like, it's just absurd. Why am I feeling so much shame and guilt? The people who should feel shame and guilt, they never seem to feel like I do. Why am I feeling? A, because I'm basically a pretty decent person to most people. I'm not, you know, I'm truly suffering. <laughs> and I haven't really caused that much suffering in the world. <laughs> and so, like, it's absurd. <laughs> There I go. So I just eat a lot of ice cream. <laughs> it is so absurd, though, because we do, we treat ourselves like we are, we are prisoners of Alcatraz, or we should be. Totally, we should be. They should yeah. lock us up. We are not nice enough. Yeah, but then what you ask would say, oh, no, you're, you're a pretty decent human being. Like, you're right, like, you try good. really freaking hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we don't seem to think so. No, like, no. I'm just curious like what standards are we talking about like on what planet like yes. i pick up ants out of the house and take them out like i like i'm oh, ridiculous yeah. conscientious of people's feelings now does it mean i always get it right no i'm tone deaf and i can step on people's toes but it's a hundred percent accidental never trying to be harmful to anybody Am I? Of course, because it's part of the human condition. Nobody gets out of here without being an asshole. Like, none of us. Like, no matter how hard we try. I just think it is kind of absurd that the people who worry about it the most and really punish themselves the most, if there was some sort of, a, you know, ombudsman or whatever you call it that was out there to sort of weigh it, you know, have you, do you really deserve to suffer this much? Mm. I think most people <laughs> feel like, no, we don't have to relieve, you know, relive that fifth grade party for the 75th time. Oh, goodness. Yes. When you said that and you meant to say this and she was so hurt, I think we're good. I think you've punished yourself enough. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. I wish somebody would just show up in my life and be like, enough. We're done with fifth grade. Let's move on to sixth grade. <laughs> Gosh, there's so much there that we could, I want to go into the, it is, it's, it's quite the fascinating thing though, right? We subject ourselves to so much suffering that we walk Great. around, right? It's, and that was the beautiful thing about Haiti, right? Yes. Like that is legitimate suffering. That is like, there is no freaking worse situation than you don't have electricity. You don't have the ability to keep your children safe. You don't have shelter. You don't have, you know, adequate supply to clean water, food, anything, completely trying to just make by as best as you can. And where's the joy? It's everywhere. Mm. It's the singing, it's the happiness, it's the holding, it's the, it's the considering relationships the most important thing. It's a total inversion of our value system. And yet it feels so true. So why are we suffering so much? Maybe, maybe we're suffering so much because we, on some level, know that our value system is wrong. And maybe, just maybe, 
all of these messages around underperformance or you know social critique is really driving at something deeper that's underneath the verbalization of you're looking in the wrong direction hmm. you're paying attention to all the wrong things and it's like wake up this is what's important your friends your family this connection, physical touch. I think COVID has been beautiful for us waking up to, holy shit, we need this to live. Yeah. I must be touched to live. I hugged my cousin um, for the first time a couple of weeks ago. We had a, our family pods got together and we'd all gotten tested and been in quarantine. And I, I hugged her for like two minutes. Mm. And it felt so good. And that's all that really matters. Like all this other stuff is very confusing and our worth isn't out there. It's, it's right here. And we get to, we get to say when we're worthy and we get to declare it at any time, which is I am worthy just because I breathe. Hmm. Just cause I'm here, not my bio or in any of the stuff I've done. None of it really matters. Because all of it, in some weird way, was like this in, insane pretense to prove to the world I was worthy. And I just did a shit ton of it. <laughs> like, really? No, I'm worthy. Like, you should love me. No, I'm awesome. Yes. I, I, okay, first of all, I thank you because... I have recorded 150 plus of these conversations since April. And I have desperately wanted to find some sort of way to weave in the Avengers and Marvel movies into a conversation. <laughs> this is the first one to provide the opportunity and I'd be remiss if I didn't offer this. So oh. I, there's, they just had the last one last year where, and there's a big scene where Thor, when the person, he has this magical hammer and the whole, the whole ethos of the hammer is, is whoever's, you have to be worthy to wield the hammer to have possessed that power. And there's a scene at the very end where it's a big dramatic, you know, all hope seems lost. And all of a sudden, Captain America, everybody's always wondering if he's going to wield it. He's able to summon the hammer and save Thor from getting killed, proving that he's worthy. The reason I bring that up as its relevance right now is because there's these really beautiful videos on the internet where it shows audiences from around the world cheering at that moment. Audiences from India, China, different countries, where this is a character called Captain America. But they're cheering for him wielding the hammer. And if we actually look at it beneath the surface of who this character really is, the reason he's worthy is he's worthy because he's a good human being. At his very nature, at his very core, what makes his, his ultimate superpower is he's a good person. He chooses the right thing, even when it's the hardest thing to do. He's, he's morally sound. His values are in alignment with his actions. And I think at the very core of it, if you strip away the Captain Americanism of him, he represents this ideal version that we all wish to see in ourselves. Right. That we would all be so worthy that we would possess that power. But the thing of it is, is that we are, it's just the thing that we're not, where we're missing the worthiness is we're not realizing we are. Because there's something fundamental, I think, around us not trusting ourselves. Like to mm. going full circle back to the beginning of the conversation, it's like, we screw up, right? And a lot of the times, nobody else witnesses our screw-ups except for us. And as we get older, it's like, well, shit, I screwed that up. I'll probably screw this up too. And so it almost becomes like a, a self-fulfilling prophet prophecy. You know, we, we want so badly, I think, to be seen as Captain America. We so badly want to be seen as somebody of good values. Good. That consistency piece is is the nut of it, right? That's the hard piece because that short term, I'm just going to take this little shortcut here, or I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to just get mine now. All of that stuff is always present, right? And so often we're fighting, like I said, you know, millions of years of evolution that's telling us, yes, eat the ice cream or yes, you know, take the shortcut. Or, yes. Get what's yours. You know, all, all of those right there right and it is you know and i think that's the piece where we are so organized to see the negative that we miss all the times that we did it well 
Hmm. Right? We don't credit ourselves for all the times we chose correctly and we pushed the ice cream away or we said, no, I'll take it, I'll take, I'll go the hard road. We remember those examples of when we chose not, which is actually the vast majority minority for most of us, right? Um, so we should, we have all this evidence that we should trust ourselves, but because we have this small case for most of us, small case studies of I was a bad decider here. I think that's part of the mechanism at work. I'm just spitballing, but, but I know that to be true for me is like, I, I started to write a whole bunch of um, affirmations with COVID um, that really has been helpful with my anxiety. And it's just basically, I trust, I trust myself that I can figure out, I, I try to, I trust that I can find joy no matter what life gives me. I trust that I can find joy no matter what life gives me. And writing that down daily has really helped me start to get at that under anxiety that sits there because it's really directly addressing it. On some level, I do know I'm capable. I've handled really hard stuff hmm. and it hasn't crushed me yet. So maybe I'm better off trusting myself and being present in the moment opposed to this constant trying to fix the future and understand reorganize the past, which is a mindless autopilot behavior that I think all of us fall into when we're scared. How, how do you, how do you create space or I don't know, I'm going to give you three, three phrases and then you run up yeah. the feels right. How do you create space, allow for, or juggle that dynamic of knowing that at some level you're capable of feeling joy, but then in the, in the feelingness of whatever's coming up for you, allowing yourself to feel through it, even though you know that joy is an alternative that's available to you and you have the capacity to turn to your true north and go to it? It's a great question. Um, I'd love to say that I, I nail it all the time. I don't. Um, I forget. And that's why the affirmations, right? Um, it's just trying to keep joy purse, you know, front and center. Um, you know, today I had a lot of really good things happen and I can feel the guilt and shame coming up around that because how can good things happen to me right now while COVID's happening and so many people are suffering? And I have to be very conscientious to say and shift to say, I'm a suffering being too, and I do not deserve to suffer. You know, I deserve to be able to feel good about the good things that happen in my life. I deserve that. Um, it is the kind thing. It is the most kind thing to accept that goodness and be present with it. And in so doing, I create space for others to celebrate their wins and their good things that are happening in spite of the context, because it's always in spite of something. There's always suffering in this realm. Always. We just happen to be very, very aware of it right now because it's a unique experiment where everybody's suffering at the same time. And that's kind of, in some ways, kind of wonderful because it, there's a collectiveness to it, mm. you know? Nobody's escaping this. Um, and it's a great opportunity for us to test and poke at and try to break open these hard nuts that we keep doing, these hard patterns or these hard thought forms, right? Where I shouldn't be happy if people are suffering in the world. What the hell is that about? Like who planted that seed? That is a, you know, something that worth breaking open, looking at and going, yeah, I probably shouldn't eat that peanut and throw it over <laughs> your shoulder. But, you, you know, I, I, I found myself eating and taking a bite of that peanut at times. Mm -hmm. Crazy. I know I shouldn't eat it. it. Always. The mold and the rot on it is so unbelievably visible, yet even though it's so visible, and I know I have all these other delicious peanuts over there that I deserve and it's great and wonderful, I can enjoy it. I bite into that motherfucker and I bite yes. into it. And then not only do I bite into it, I don't spit it out. I sit there and chew on it. And then I sit there and, right. boy, this tastes horrible. This isn't good. But I still don't spit it out. I keep chewing and I keep chewing and I keep chewing. And I think that I have to actually sit there and chew through it 
Right. And it takes almost sometimes, I swear, like an act of God or me literally just slapping myself and saying, wait a minute, right. there's choice. You don't have to. The yeah. The choice, there's always a choice to reorient towards joy. The issue is that we've got all of these sensors in our body that are just really there to keep us alive. And a lot of times they're bored. And so they're filling our brain with all this stuff that is like, no, 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 you need to sit down and just hang out in the corner for a while. We're good. We're safe. You know, you don't have to remind me about sixth grade in the truck and me running into it. Um, you know, that's not helpful right now. Let me just be in this moment and enjoy this beautiful moment. Mm. Um, and it goes against all of our training because this culture does not put a priority on mindfulness just doesn't. Um, so when we're little, none of us are trained to sit quietly with our thoughts, you know, we're not, nobody teaches us, you know, that we have to have good mental health. Like that's not part of the, you know, typical curriculum in grammar school where we're paying really attention to emotional health. Um, so it's no surprise we get here, but there's an economy that runs on our insecurities. Mm. And that economy buzzes along very nicely with us feeling very tortured about who we are in the world and the need yeah. to make that better. And so good consumers are highly neurotic. Yeah, I've, I've often said the two biggest businesses in the world are fear and mediocrity. Yeah, it and feeds everything. It's, a, but it's interesting because I see it as I get older, like a magical spell, right? It's like, this magical spell that makes me feel bad about my body or bad about my mm. intellect or bad about my accomplishments or because it's all over the you know media and the advertising and everything and it's all designed to get me to feel bad enough to buy something to solve it and that's just so sucky like yeah. we're such easy animals to hack and now we've got artificial intelligence aiming directly at humans to figure out how to get us to consume more what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Kelly, yeah, it, I, there's, there's a thousand questions I still want to ask you, and I want to make sure I honor your time and the time of the listeners. So I, before I ask you my final question, this is where that ish time frame I was telling you is very selfish because there's the me wanting to keep going, but I, I, to stay accountable. So before I ask you my final question, where can people, where's the best place for folks to find you online? Right now, LinkedIn. Um, okay. Just contact, reach out to me via LinkedIn. It's E. Kelly Fitzsimmons on LinkedIn. Um, and I do try to, to answer all inquiries, you know, that come in. Um, and if they're interested in the art project that we're working on, it's in the um, which you can sign up and start to go on this artistic journey with us. So maybe we can end there with that, because I think one of the things that's really incredible and having talked to you before, having read your book, having spent this time with you now, is it seemed like this whole front part of your life was so about succeeding and drive, drive you know, that entrepreneurial journey. And, and, and I wish we had time to talk about the dynamic with your dad because it seemed like it was this figure that you had such love and respect for and looked up to, but also felt this, this need to prove yourself to you know, to, to measure up to or something, and then but also to separate yourself from the shadow that maybe he he cast and whatnot, and and, and so here you you go on this one path, and all of a sudden now it's like you're shifting over into this artistic realm of music and exploration. I was hoping maybe you could just talk a little bit about that or what it is to, I don't know if it's reinvent yourself, but maybe lean into this part of yourself where you feel that you're, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so please correct it, but you know, leaning into where you feel called to right now or where, what feels innately right to you. Yeah. I mean, this is really about the process of joy, right? And, and, and tracking. And what I started asking myself is the question was, what do I do when nobody's looking? Mm. And the answer is, you know, I make art when nobody's looking. And when I was very, very sick, I was working on the book um, and I was doing it in voice memos. And alongside it, I was also humming and singing songs because I was so sick that like, I lost my ability to read 
and I had to take a six month sabbatical from work and I was trying to figure out, well, who am I if I can't be an entrepreneur? And um, I didn't have any answers. And that was the context in which I started to, to lay out the ideas that would become the book um, through voice memos originally, and then started to lay down ideas for this, this album that was just really me trying to process the loss of my mom and my sister um, within six months of each other. And then this illness that came on that I thought was grief, which turned out to be we had toxic mold in our house. And, uh, and I actually had a brain injury from it. So in that context, what I discovered is that um, the most important thing for me always was this creative process. And, and that was why I chose startups because they were socially acceptable. You know, mm. to be a tech entrepreneur, you get a lot of cred very quickly. And to be a musician and an artist, particularly in this culture, you know, a lot of parents would prefer, you know, almost anything but, you know. So I, I decided, you know, to come out in terms of as an artist and start to create. And it had a lot to do with me working with artists. Um, I had a group of musicians that I was, um, that I was working with through the backline program in Milwaukee, where I was doing coaching. And basically, musicians are entrepreneurs too. So I was trying to give them my skills and and, and try to help them navigate these really hard decisions that they have to make around their career with these tools that I built for the book. So I workshopped the book and the exercises in it on these group of artists. And in the process, I was totally transformed and changed by it. Um, they helped me discover like, oh, by the way, you're an artist and why are you over there and not here? And I realized that my, part of my GPS is stepping into stuff that scares me crazy. Like the stuff that really, really scares me, I know is the stuff I'm supposed to be doing. And so I, I knew that was art. And so in this process, I ended up putting together an art collective of about 20 artists. Um, and over the course of the year, we're releasing a song a month and a piece of short fiction. And it's been a total joy. I absolutely love it. I love working with the artists. I love being able to collaborate and create something that is it feels so much bigger than any one person. Um, and I feel like I'm finally showing up fully as me, opposed to a very tidy version of me because art making is messy. And uh, you really, it's, you want to put your vulnerability into the world and you want to see how brave you are, try releasing a song or try putting art into the world. It's just like, here's my baby, mm. ah, cruel world. Um, but it's also a great exercise in letting go and, and attachment and saying, if I fall in love with this and want to share it with the world, the world might not like it. It might not be ready, but does it really matter? Um, and so that's how I've been holding it is like, I know this is great work for me and for the people I work with and that's good enough. And if you want to share and partake in this, yay. And if not, totally cool. So attachment um, and really getting a sense of like, how much is my ego attached to my art making? That's been the biggest gift of it. Cause it's, you can't put a cheer and artist together. It's a really nasty combo. Everyone, my goodness, are we gonna wanna rewatch and re-listen this one? I am. <laughs> I am very difficult to be ending this right now to stay in time integrity with you all. But I, if you're slightest bit like me right now, you probably have a thousand different questions you want to ask and a thousand different rabbit holes you'd like to explore. And I think the thing that evokes that right now is Kelly so willing to go down and explore those rabbit holes. When we were talking before we started recording, I asked her, is there anything she wants to make sure we cover? And she said, no, let's just flow where the conversation goes and flow. We did. What started as a journey to Haiti to find joy and what became her true north ended up covering some incredible, some credible rabbit holes, some of which we just got to glance over. The realization of the four-year-old having the understanding of since she already had a pair of pants, it should go to someone else. And the idea of how it came to be of the awareness of who's really in poverty in the sense of emotional poverty. And that, that you had this, these folks that seem so void of everything that we tend to often value, yet they had everything that we really wanted. The, the journey from Haiti and how it really uncovers the things that matter most in life. And 
and how that allows us to go into the self-exploration of what we value and what our values really are and are we living this and this idea of worthiness, right? And being worthy of having joy, being worthy of it, being able to just be okay in life without the condition of punishment. We talked about the punishment piece that would go into whether it's having the ice cream and the cup that kept breaking or the too many peanut butter pretzels and how it seems that we'll sometimes give in to these ideas of or this need to give ourselves a little a little TLC. And then so doing, we reciprocate that TLC with punishment. And what would life be like if we were able to absolve the punishment piece and we're able to so allow ourselves to feel those without, if we could allow ourselves to feel gratitude without guilt, joy without the shame that might come with it. You know, what an incredible life that might be. I love that she invited us to explore and look at the messiness of life, right? To acknowledge, I think one of the things that's really extraordinary about what Kelly shared today is she's willing to acknowledge her own messiness. I, you know, there's a truth in that that we can all relate to, which is probably why we all wanted to keep going, is that there's this truth in that we all realize that our lives are not perfect. They're not polished the way we might present them on social media, which often pre presents this neat and tidy version of what we think we should be on steroids. The reality is it's often much messier behind the filters, behind the, the, the filters and the likes and the apps that make it look picture perfect. That really the reality is, is it's, we're all these vulnerable human beings going around trying to figure out and working against what we talked about, how easy it is for us to be biohacked to think that we need to buy more and consume more. So on top of us all trying to go around finding our own true north, wrestling with those shame spirals, wrestling with those guilt goblins, we're dealing with a society that wants to get us to say that the solution to our problem is to consume and keep consuming and keep consuming, which we all know it's, mon it's momentarily, isn't it? We get a little taste of it, it's a little bit of rush, but then it's fleeting, it leaves us with an emptiness. You know, a bird shits on a Ferrari just as easy as it does a Toyota. And it very quickly, that new smell of the new, the newness of it wears away and we're left with a, a big expensive car no matter what we drive. And at some point, we're gonna have to replace the wheels. Gosh, you know, I, I think there's so many messages that we could walk away with this. And uh, as much as I wanna say, look at Joy's True North, maybe there's also something as powerful as embrace our messiness. Mm -hmm. Because there's an authenticity in it, isn't there? And I think in that authenticity, there's a permission to live more freely. And something that I wish we would have had more time for, but I think Kelly started to say there at the end was there's this, as she's been able to become more of who she is, there's this freeness of it too. And, and maybe that's something we can all give ourselves permission at later in the evening when we look at ourselves in the mirror as we're brushing our teeth is perhaps we can inquire what the question would be for each of us of what our lives would look like if we gave ourselves permission to live a little more freely. Kelly, this has been absolutely incredible. Thank you so very much for taking the time to be here with us today. And I just, again, the time went far too fast and I am so grateful you were here. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. We will see you next time, everyone, on another edition of A Handful of Hope. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you're finding value in these conversations, please rate and review on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever your favorite place is to listen to them.